Amen. Quite a song. That's how you want to. That's how you want to be set up, right there. Thank you so much to Pastor Blake and the pastoral team for having me this weekend to do the conference on the gospel and wokeness yesterday, and now to open the Word with you in the Sunday service. Uh, it's such a blessing to be in fellowship and serious friendship with Blake, and by extension, with you. Some years ago, I heard a story about the musician Michael Card. His father was a doctor, a surgeon, and had to perform complex life-saving operations on a regular basis. As fits such a career of vocation, when Michael Card's father, the doctor, would return home, he was frequently tired and empty, so to speak. He had very little left to give. And he would go into his study, and he would sometimes shut the door and even lock it because he simply did not feel after hour upon hour of life-saving operations that he could engage his family well. Many busy young fathers can relate. Michael Card uh, told the heartbreaking story of coming to the door and finding it locked when all he wanted to do was go in and talk with his father, laugh with him, share what he had been doing his day. So what Michael Card devised as a way to reach his dad was to color pictures and slide them under the door and communicate to his father in those means. When I heard this story, I was reminded of how we all naturally want an earthly father who loves us. That's a tremendous desire of the human heart. But even more than an earthly father, important as an earthly father and mother are, we all want something more than that. We all crave inherently and instinctually a heavenly father, a heavenly father who loves us. And we all know that we are not home. We are not home in this world. Everybody knows this at some level. We may reckon with this truth and even, in a sense, deny it and pretend as if we are home here, pretend as if we can be happy lastingly here. This is our home. This is our dwelling place. And yet, it is not. And yet, God will continually destabilize human efforts to find a lasting home here. You can't do it. You can try. You see, it's not just that you can't find a lasting home, a physical dwelling place. You can't find a lasting father here. Even if you have a godly, earthly father, he will die. He will not be here forever. You can't bank on him. You can't put your security and trust in him or in your family. You see, this is because you need a heavenly father. In our passage this morning, we see how we can have one. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 is going to be our passage this morning, and we're going to cover three facets of these 11 verses. First, in verses 11 to 12, we're going to see that the peoples of earth are alienated. The peoples of earth are alienated. Second, in verses 13 to 18, we're going to see that the two peoples, Jew and Gentile, as we'll see in the text, are united in Christ. 
And then in verses 19 to 22, we're going to see that the church is the household of God, the family, the dwelling place that we are truly all questing for. So let's look at verses 11 and 12 and see that the peoples of earth are alienated. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, we, oh, we are so happy to confess that we are walking up, way up a mountain to solid granite, to the rock of your word. Father, we confess this morning that many of us feel like everything is coming apart at the seams, whether in our society or in our own personal life. (laughs) Nothing feels certain. Nothing feels solid today in 2020 for many people. So please, Father, anchor us on the solid rock of your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In this passage, Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians. They are, they are not Jews, and so they have not been circumcised, the men that is in this case, and they are strangers to the covenants of promise as we will be seeing. In other words, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church about 2,000 years ago in a city called Ephesus, and he's writing to these people who are separated from Christ, he says in this little portion, alienated from Israel. Israel and strangers to the grace of God. In other words, he's writing to a people who have no natural claim on God. They are not natural born members of the family of God. In truth, no one is. And yet the Gentiles here in Ephesus really are far off in natural terms from the covenants, from God. Their natural condition is that they are separated from Christ. You see that in verse 12. And this speaks to the natural condition of all humanity. Naturally, we are all outside of Christ. No one, again, is born into the family of heaven in natural terms. Everybody needs a birth from above. There is nothing you can do to make yourself savable in natural terms. Humanity thinks it can We think we can, but Paul is teaching this people that they had nothing to do with their salvation, absolutely nothing. They were as far away from the household and family of God as you could get. That's his point in verses 11 and 12, as far away, as estranged from God as you could be, the Ephesian Gentiles were. They didn't know anything about the covenants of promise. You see that phrase in verse 12. They did not know about the promise of salvation that was to be found in the covenants God gave his people, the Israelites. Covenants with creation, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. The Ephesian Gentiles didn't know about these covenants and frankly, in natural terms, didn't care. Just like people in Abilene or Kansas City don't really know about the new covenant of Jesus Christ and in many cases, don't really care. This is where the Gentiles were. 
They were aliens. They were alienated from God. And in verse 12, Paul talks about their condition. They were without hope. They have no hope, none. They're without God. And this tells us something important to mark in our time in 2020 in America, strange days indeed. We, in our natural state, have no hope. It's a strange thing to confess in a church service that's ostensibly about encouragement in God, but it's true. In our natural condition, we are not just emotionally hopeless, feeling like we're hopeless. Friends, it's way worse than that. All sorts of people feel like they're hopeless. And and when you hear a classmate or a friend or a neighbor say that sort of thing, in natural human terms, what do you do? You you put your arm around them or or you try to build them up and show them how, no, it's not that bad. There's, there's, There's hope. There's goodness in your life. And there, there are occasions where you do, do need to buck somebody up in that way, but note this. Actually, if you're outside of Christ, the true response to somebody who is not a Christian saying, I just kind of feel, I don't know, I just kind of feel hopeless. The truth, according to the Apostle Paul, is they are hopeless. We're all hopeless. Strong words, aren't they? You're starting to feel the weirdness of biblical Christianity in these days? There's no hope outside of Jesus? None? That's what the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ tells the Ephesians. He's saying effectively, friends, there's nothing in Ephesus for you. Don't find your identity here. This isn't your home. You have no hope in the world. What you have will be taken from you. Everything will be shaken out. The world is shaking out in our time in 2020. And part of what is happening is people are coming to see that they don't have ultimate hope. And they are right. They don't have it. And they desperately need it. But you can't find it here. It's not just that you're emotionally hopeless, feeling bad, feeling low, feeling down. Many of us have had to wrestle with such emotions. We don't dismiss them or disdain them. But there's a worse problem. It's that we're objectively hopeless in and of ourselves. We don't have the horsepower in ourselves. There's not enough positive thinking. There's not enough just don't think negative thoughts. There's not enough just have a, have a better, uh, more clean house, uh, condoize your closet or something like this. There's nothing you can do in human terms that will give you hope in yourself. You can have a better functioning life, I will admit that. You can kick some habits, that's not necessarily a bad thing to do. There's no ultimate hope there because in our natural state, we're without God. The natural condition of every person is that we have a God deficit. And do you wanna know how big the God deficit is? Infinite. We have an infinite God deficit. And that is the worst problem every person, man or woman, boy or girl, faces in this life. It's that we have an infinite God deficit. We don't have God. We face many trials and challenges in this life. Again, we don't dismiss them as believers. 
They're real, they shape us, they affect us, even years after we go through them, and yet that's not your greatest problem. If you have pain in your past, if there is hardship in societal terms, if there's conflict and division all around us as there is in America today, that's not any of our biggest problem. Our biggest problem in natural terms is that we don't have God, and we desperately need him. The Gentiles, Paul is saying, don't have the solution. Don't find your hope, Paul is saying, in anything in Ephesus. Don't place the bet, so to speak, on that hand. Only God yields infinite hope, not hope that will just get you through your day a little bit better, not hope that will give you favor at work, and maybe lead to some real material prosperity for the first time ever. No, that's not even real hope. Real hope is found in Christ, and that leads to our second movement here. The two peoples, Jew and Gentile, are united in Christ, verses 13 to 18. But now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This passage tells us where we do find hope. It's at the very beginning of verse 13, in Christ Jesus, in Christ there is truly infinite hope. You never draw out of the ATM and it is empty in your hope balance. There is infinite hope for you in Christ Jesus. He is the one, there are eight truths that stack up in these first few verses. He is the one who brings near those who are in the far country, wandering in the wilderness, isolated with no map with no script, back to God. And Jesus is the one who goes out into the shadow lands. He's got a flashlight in his teeth and he's looking for his wayward people, his wayward sheep, and he goes and he finds them and he brings them home. He brings them near. How does he do so? It's the blood of Christ that does this. Mark how Often, the Apostle Paul in this passage and other passages will ground our hope and our salvation in the finished work of Jesus Christ, what we call the atonement of Jesus Christ, when Jesus truly in physical, historical terms hung on a cross, bled and died in the place of sinners chosen by God before the foundation of the world in order to wash us totally clean and make a way back to God through his blood. It is blood that gets this done. That will feel weird again. Here's yet another slightly weird marker of biblical Christianity. Not the fake stuff you see on TV and too many shows, but the true thing. 
It's remarkably blood-driven to a, to a degree that will take you aback a little bit. Do we really need to be talking about blood all the time? Why are we talking about blood? I don't want to talk about blood. Let's just talk about salvation. No. In biblical terms, salvation only comes with the shedding of blood, a righteous sacrifice. So this is how God has set it up to bring us back to himself. It's Jesus dying as our substitute sacrifice. Jesus taking the wrath of God the Father against our sin, the wrath that we deserve to take. Jesus dies in our place in absorbing it. Next concept we see in verse 14, Jesus is our peace. He's our peace. He's the way to peace before us and God, and he is the way to peace in all your life. There is no peace in any worldly ideology. We had this conference on wokeness. There is no peace ultimately in any philosophy or worldly system. There is no peace in any other religion. It might seem like there is. For a time, it might look like there can be. There is no true peace. Peace is objective. Peace is what God gives through the death of his son. That's the only way to find peace. He has made us both one, Paul says, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Hostility. Does that sound familiar today? Is there hostility in America? Is there hostility surging out of control? Hostility in our cities? You bet there is. How? What? How? How do, how do we solve this? Where do we go with this raging hostility? This is a biblical answer. The scripture is sufficient for this to tie up the whole theme of our, our event from yesterday. It is only in Jesus that hostility dies. It is only in Jesus that peace comes. There is no peace in the world. You can't have ultimate unity, ultimate cessation of anger in any other worldview but the worldview driven by the cross. Jesus has done the work. Ending hostility isn't about you and me and our efforts, ultimately. It's about what only Jesus can accomplish. But, but friends, don't make the cross of Christ and its power a potential power. It's not a potential power. It's a realized power. It's a victory won. It has happened, has broken down the wall of hostility. And then verse 15, he has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Jesus, in other words, has perfectly fulfilled the old covenant law in his righteous life and his death and his resurrection such that you and I don't look to the Old Testament any longer for, for the norm of our faith. It's not that the Old Testament is bad or outmoded or shows us a different God than the New Testament God, not one bit. But it is that we are no longer under the law of Israel. We are now under the law, effectively, of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say to his disciples in John 1? What did he show up on the scene? Almost as a wild man, <laughs> taking these poor fishermen completely by surprise. 
follow me. Isn't that what he said? That's what he means. He means in following the one true God, you follow Jesus Christ. He has, through his own work, end of verse 15, created in himself one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace. So there is one new man through Christ. This is the way to unity in this world. This is the only way to unity. Jesus is the only way to God. There are not many ways to God, and there are not many ways to unity. You can have a kind of basic human unity in your neighborhood or your workplace or other settings by being um, a, a decent person. You can recognize even going up a level that every person is an image bearer, and that is real human unity to be found in the image of God, as we talked about. But that won't ultimately create the unity we need, which is salvific unity, unity in Christ. You can only find true unity in this world in Jesus. It's not in a political party. It's not in a cause. It's not in the streets. It's not to be found in philosophies. It's not to be found in sports teams or getting the best job or whatever it may be. That will not ultimately fulfill you that will not solve your sin problem, and that will not create true unity. The only means to true unity is through Jesus Christ, who isn't trying to make us one. Did you note that? Note the definitive language of the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk like a postmodern professor who never gives you something definitive and concrete and absolute. The Bible doesn't talk like a lot of us talk, where we endlessly nuance ourselves and qualify ourselves and apologize for the clear statements we're making. The Bible gives you line upon line, truth upon truth. Jesus has made one new man. Jesus has done it. What our society and culture right now in America is trying to find in ungodly ideologies, unity, unity of all peoples, ethnicities, and so on, Jesus has already done. The salvation that we seek is already here. The blood of Christ does not make salvation possible. The blood of Christ makes salvation and unity certain. It's already done. What we hear so commonly from lots of different angles is actually a lie that we can, we can unify ourselves in our own strength. Or, or if we will try really hard, we can make good on reconciliation. The Bible announces to us in this passage and elsewhere that God has already done it in Christ. How strong is your Jesus? How much of a conquering king is Christ to you. How bold and fearless and self-sacrificial is your king. This is the power of Christ. Behold your king. What man tries to do and never can pull off, Jesus has done.
He has brought Jew and Gentile together, implacable foes, tremendous hostility between these two major people groups, with long-standing grievance, with, with real injustices done on both sides to each other, each side coming to the table and having lots to bring and convict the other side of in terms of evil and hostility and division. And what Jesus has done is he has taken all that hostility and division and he has poured out his blood in order to dissolve it. And so in the cross of Christ, every grievance is laid down. In the cross of Christ, every injustice is ultimately met. In the cross of Christ, all hostility between those who are in Christ ceases. And this is a tremendous threat to the gospel today, that we would cling to our background, to our pain, to our hostility, to our real grievances. I'm not saying they're imaginary grievances. I'm saying they're real but that we would bring them into the family of God as if the blood of Christ is not enough to overcome them when the Apostle Paul says they're already overcome. They were overcome about 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. That is where hostility ceases. Are there issues we have to work out in this life? Yes. Is there a call to the church to be salt and light? Yes. Can Christians perpetuate injustice in different ways? We can. So we got to work those things out. But this is where all this goes to die. This is where peace is found. This is where unity is found. Verse 16, this is where reconciliation is found. It's already here. It's already happened. It's already come. It's through the cross. It's killed the hostility. End of verse 16. You understand that Jesus kills things? He kills things. He's not a savior who uses an inside voice and upsets nobody's feelings and always does what he is told to do and is neat and tame and niceified according to worldly standards. Jesus is a warrior king. This is not the Jesus of our cultural imagining. This is not the Jesus who dangles around our neck. This is not the Jesus who comes to give you health, wealth, prosperity, and everything you've ever dreamed of. This is a different Jesus. This is the true Jesus. There are many Jesuses out there that you can find in books, TV shows, on podcasts, on social media, and they're not the true Jesus. Just because a professor or a teacher or a pastor says they follow Jesus, just because a book purports to give you Jesus doesn't mean it is. You have to understand the true Jesus. And the true Jesus kills what? Hostility. Really, the word of our time is hostility. Really, what wokeness seeks to evoke in us is hostility and division, as we've talked about this weekend. And what Jesus does is he takes the hostility that Jews have, and he takes the hostility that Gentiles have. And according to the Apostle Paul, this is truly revolutionary. He kills it. He ends it. So in Christ, this is how there is peace. There is peace with God first and foremost for us. And then there is peace with all the church. And accordingly, in living in a fallen world, we're dominated by peace. We're a people who exude a sense of peace, not a sense of anxiety not a sense of fear of death 
we are wise and we want to handle different situations like the one we're in carefully and we want to love our neighbor and all sorts of things. So there's much to say there. But we are not a people who are dominated by fear and anxiety and hostility. We're tempted to be. We're told to be. We're instructed to be. But we must reject these instructions of the enemy, of the devil, and we must find in the cross of Christ true hope, true peace, and true unity. Hostility has objectively ceased. Reconciliation is not something you and I pull off in the truest sense. It is something God does. And all this means, verse 18, that we have access in one spirit to the Father. So through the indwelling Holy Spirit in every believer, we are never locked out of the Father's study. We do not look in through the windows at this beautiful home with a fire roaring in the fireplace and happy people inside and life and vitality in this family and we are out in the cold looking in with no family to receive us. That's not who we are any longer. We have access to the Father and the Father swings his doors open wide and doesn't say, I need some quiet. I need to be isolated and alone. Don't come in, children. Leave me alone. Let me recover. The Father says, come, come in. Come home through the Spirit. This is the call of the Father. The Father wants you to come in. The Father wants those who are prodigals to come back to him. The Father wants sinners to be washed and cleansed and adopted. And this is what we have. You will never go to the Father and find that he is not loving on that day. You will never go to the Father and find that his forgiveness, I'm so sorry, it's run out. You've used up your forgiveness points. You understand? You've used them up. It can feel like that in earthly terms, can it? Anybody have trouble in the lockdown season getting frustrated and annoyed with anyone else in their house? Was that a struggle for you? Did you, did you call somebody in your family and say, I'm just having a lot of trouble right now getting annoyed with people in my life? It's not normally... Okay, I thought it was funny to me, but that's okay. Um, you don't have to laugh. It was not hard, at least on some days, to find means of annoyance. The father is never annoyed with his children. And the father never says, I'm so sorry. You've run out of forgiveness. We can feel that way. We can feel like we have, oh, we, I have run out of forgiveness. This situation, I'm out. No more forgiveness. There are different circumstances that we have to handle carefully. Let that be said. There's excommunication from a church, for example, for members who fall into pagan practices. And that's true. And that's biblical. But note the Father's kindness. We always have access to him, Jew and Gentile alike. The Father is often portrayed in our society, in our culture, as if he's not good. God the Father specifically. Sometimes people like God the Son, Jesus Christ, because he seems really loving. He goes to the cross. But the Father, I don't want to talk about the Father. Father, man, I don't want to talk about predestination. 
I don't want to talk about his will. I don't want to talk about his plan and his sovereignty. He just, he can seem distant and unloving and unkind. But the biblical portrait of God the Father is that he is the one who sets up the entire system that saves us. He is the one who meets the terms of his justice, his perfect divine justice in the person and work of his son. So never think, never think that God the Father is a character you can't trust. God the Father is the one you can trust. God the Father brings us home, and this leads to our third and final truth. The church is the household of God, verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The result of the work of Christ is not that there are different churches according to different ethnicities or different skin colors or different classes. The result of the work of Christ, the atonement, is that we are one household. It's done. It's not an option. It's not an add-on bonus for those of us who can upgrade and afford it. It is done. We are fellow citizens, verse 19, with the saints, and we are members of the household of God. You have received your membership card to the household, and no one can take it from you. Once you were a stranger and an alien to God, but now, now you are a member of the family. Christ is the one who has made all this possible. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Typically, when evangelicals hear that, most of us not doing a lot of home construction on a day-to-day basis, which is probably a good thing for home construction, when we hear the word cornerstone, we think big stone. Ah, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's a really big stone. Well, Jesus is a really big savior, isn't he? But actually, a cornerstone in the ancient Near Eastern world was very crucial, the Greco-Roman world, because the entire building was aligned based on it, one stone. The entire household, the entire home, physical structure being built, was calibrated by one stone, just one stone, the cornerstone. Why is this significant? It's significant because the cornerstone had to be precisely aligned. If you got the cornerstone wrong, the whole house would be off. Once in a while, you and I read some terrible headline or see a clip on the news or something like this on social media of a structure collapsing and people being killed because of, because of carelessness in building. If you don't build along the cornerstone with the right alignment, the building will not stand. There are many churches that are not aligned correctly upon the cornerstone that are not teaching the true biblical doctrine of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the cornerstone. You have to understand Jesus rightly. You don't select the Jesus you like. You, you follow the biblical Jesus, and the biblical Jesus builds off of the entire structure and grows us all into a holy temple in the Lord. This is a nice building. That's great stained glass. This is a nice church building. This is not the church. This building is not the dwelling place of the Spirit. You are the dwelling place of the Spirit. You are the church. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are growing into a holy temple in the Lord with all the saints. You are the center of worship. That's what a temple was in Old Testament times. It's where the people of God truly did gather to worship the Lord. It's a physical structure in the Old Testament times. But now no longer is a physical structure a temple. You are a temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16. We are the dwelling place of the Spirit. Wherever you go, you're a little center of worship. Think about this this week. Going to work, going to school, neighborhood, wherever you may be. You are the center of living worship to God. People are seeing, they're watching how you worship the living Christ. And by God's grace, this isn't dependent on your efforts. You are in Christ growing into a holy temple. You're being built, verse 22, into a, into a dwelling place for God. We are collectively by the Spirit. All this means then that God is working in us. <laughs> This is the opposite of do-it-yourself Christianity. Before the foundation of the world, the Father chose us in the Son, and now God is growing us all, all who are in Christ, into the dwelling place of God. God is forming us. None of this is according to human wisdom. None of this is according to human design. No one put this up on the whiteboard for Almighty God and proposed it to him as a working plan for unity. This is all the design of God. This is all what the Father is accomplishing through the Son, by the Spirit. But mark this. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you are outside of the dwelling place of God. It may feel comfortable now, but you do not know Jesus as your Savior. Today is the day of salvation. Whenever the gospel is preached is the day of salvation. Today is that day for you if you are outside of Christ, if you are not reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus and reconciled therefore to man through the cross. Today is the day to come in. Don't stand outside looking in on this lovely home with a fire roaring in the hearth, yearning to come in. Come in today. Are you not seeing how this world and its promises are bankrupt? Are you not seeing how our world is anxious to an almost impossible degree? Are you not seeing how you can truly lose your mind over the fear of death? Many people are. Is this going to be your fate? Are you going to follow the wisdom of man which leads nowhere? It leads only to destruction, everlasting, just destruction. Or will you come in? The doors are open. The doors to the house are open wide. The blood of Christ is for you, for sinners like us. Let me give you just a few quick closing thoughts here. Application for Christians. First, 
remember that true unity and reconciliation come only through the cross. This is where unity and reconciliation is to be found, the blood of Jesus. This is the only sure foundation for unity and reconciliation, the blood of the Son of God. Second, think regularly on the plan of salvation of God. Think more, friend. Think more about how God has acted to save you than about what is going on in Abilene, Texas, or America. Think more this week about how God has acted to bring you home. That is better and bigger news than whatever is going to play out on Twitter or Instagram or your favorite internet site this week. Do not be discipled by the culture. Be discipled by the word of God. Do not be amazed and raptured by worldly things. Be amazed and enraptured by the plan of salvation that is bringing you all the way home to heaven and the new heavens and new earth. You have no excuse for not worshiping God this week. You have no excuse for letting your heart be drawn away to the world, by the world. Center by the grace of God your thinking, your emotions, all your life on the greatness of salvation that God is carrying out, that you're a part of. That is a bigger deal in your life than anything that will happen in this country this coming week. Third, and finally, remember that justice is ultimately what God does. Yes, we are brought into the work of justice as Christians. Yes, we should be salt and light in a Matthew 5 sense any chance we get here, but ultimately, justice belongs to the Lord. There is no human justice movement on this planet that is ultimately going to bring true justice. True justice is only found through God in the cross, and it is centered in the church. That is where we find justice. So when you hear promises of hope and peace and unity and oneness and diversity, appreciation of it, whatever else, take those claims to Scripture and evaluate them by God's plan. And remember that justice is only ultimately what God can do through his son. Friends, we are not children straining unsuccessfully to get the attention of our heavenly father. We already have it. I would very much encourage you this week to live in light of the fact that the doors to your father's home, to your father's study, whatever has happened in your earthly life with your dad. The doors are open wide. And God is not only willing that you could come in and see him on occasion, God is calling to you to come in and know his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us. We do have hearts that are weary and drawn off easily. We, we do make many excuses for ourselves as to why we don't worship you continually. 
We have no ultimate excuse, but we all offer many reasons why we do not obey and do not give you the worship that you deserve. Help us, Father. Help us to be built up into the dwelling place of the Spirit, not just ourselves individually, but the whole church. We love you. We praise you, Father, that you are a good Father. We thank you that you are better than every earthly father. We thank you that every grievance dies in the cross of Christ, and we pray that we would be faithful in evil days. In Jesus' name, amen.